and Israelites, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. In the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. May the wheels of their chariots come off, so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw, saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So in the movie uh, District 9, aliens arrive in Johannesburg, South Africa, in the year 1982. But they don't arrive with the sort of grandeur found in a movie like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They're more like refugees who've washed up from outer space. Malnourished with their ship in disrepair, these insect-like creatures are quarantined in District 9. And over the next 30 years, that area is reduced to squalor conditions and hostility between the aliens and humanity grows. Now, it's quite appropriate that the film is set in Johannesburg. It is a South African film. And it is sort of a metaphor for how native Africans were treated uh, in, during, under the apartheid government. But that isn't the only place where you can find parallels like that. The parallels are throughout history. We, we have this tendency to, to, to create ghettos and, and uh, isolate certain people groups from the dominant population. And when that isolation creates poverty and often crime, well, then we're able to say, see, they are the problem. That's the, they are the problem. It's not their isolation that's the problem. Then there are indications in Genesis and Exodus that this is the sort of treatment that uh, Israel received in Egypt. Both Moses, or both Joseph in in Genesis, and then Moses uh, note that the Egyptians find Israelite culture rather repugnant. And so they're sort of isolated to this region of Goshen. That's their District 9. They're the unwanted aliens 
whose only value is in what is in uh, doing Egypt's bidding. And as is so often the case with an enslaved people, they're both needed and resented. And no doubt they're resented because they're needed. And then, you know, the story is that one day Moses shows up and tells them that their cries have been heard. Yahweh is going to demand that Pharaoh let them go. In other words, people who have been made to feel like unwelcome burdens their whole lives suddenly have a God on their side, a God capable of issuing orders to Pharaoh. But of course, Pharaoh's question in response to that order is this. Who is Yahweh that I should heed him? Well, as we discussed last week, the chapters that follow are Yahweh's answer. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. And it is one blow after another until Pharaoh, in fact, does know. Until Pharaoh knows what the universe itself knows. That when Yahweh says, let there be light, there is light. Heeding the words of Yahweh brings life. Defying the words of Yahweh brings destruction. And with his world in ruins, Pharaoh finally heeds. And this and he heeds, it's not, in, it's not the original request, which was just to have this festival in the wilderness. No, this is permanent. And suddenly, I mean, it is freedom. There are possibilities suddenly opened up to them that their ancestors could not imagine. They're heading to a land of their own. The opportunity to reap the rewards of their own labor to celebrate their identity without the judgment of your supposed superiors. And what's more, they're not leaving empty-handed. These Egyptians are suddenly desperate to just load them up with, with gold and all sorts of treasures. It is hard to imagine the kind of excitement that they must have been feeling. The text describes them as going out boldly. But it is also hard to imagine marching along boldly and hearing commotion from behind you. Sounds of panic, trying to make out what, what, what's everybody screaming about. Something about Pharaoh, something about an army. And then seeing in the distance a rising cloud of dust moving steadily in your direction. You know, last week I suggested that Pharaoh resembled sort of a, an addict. Here he's more like an abusive spouse, you know, because an, an abused spouse is at no greater risk than at the point he or she decides to leave for good, uh, especially when the abuser is convinced that they're leaving for good. It's at that point they say, if I can't have you, no one will. The indications here are that Pharaoh has no intention of negotiating a return to Egypt. 
All his horses and chariots, his entire army is barreling down on them. And this, there is an emphasis on the fact that chariots, right? Because chariots are sort of the, the fighter planes of the ancient world, right? And I mean, imagine they're flying in and there's just this mass of people, you know, old women, old men, you know, young children, just easy. It's going to be a slaughter, right? Uh, Par Lagerkvisk, Swedish, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He, he's a novelist. He has this novel called The Dwarf. It's set in Italy in the 15th century, and it features a character that's clearly, clearly modeled after Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, the character's name is Bernardo, instead of Leonardo, I guess. And there's this aristocratic family that has hired uh, Bernardo to not only invent machines to help them in their, their fight against the neighboring city-state, but also to paint a fresco, specifically of uh, Jesus hosting the Last Supper. You can see the parallels. Anyway, and Bernardo is sort of presented as somebody suffering from like bipolar because there are moments of this sort of manic creativity and exuberance and then uh, depression and despair. Uh, and in those moments of you know, manic creativity and exuberance, he's just, he's awed. He's awed by the immensity and vastness of life. But when he's depressed, he realizes that all, all those things he was celebrating, all that immensity, all that, that vastness, it's simply beyond our ability to, to comprehend. It's, it's, it's meaningless to us. And so it makes that depression uh, even harder to endure. He has this great uh, analogy. He compares our fate to that of a falcon on the leash of a falconer. You know, the, the hood comes off, exposing the falcon to the limitless sky. Falcon spreads its wings and takes flight. And for a while, there is joy and freedom. But eventually, the bird feels the tug of the falconer's leash. Its wings are capable of flying higher, further, but destiny will not allow it. And Bernardo says this, What use are wings when they can never be spread? They become a burden instead of a release. They weigh us down. We trail them and finally we hate them. And it comes as a relief when the falconer wearies of his cruel play and draws the hood over our head so that we no longer have to see anything. When Israel sees Pharaoh's army approaching, they not only feel fear, but anger. They are angry with Moses. Was, was it because there are, were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
We were happier under the hood, Moses. You know, there are lots of ways you can experience that leash. I think marriage is often uh, that for people because there's often there's such a high with falling in love and all that. I mean, I, brain researchers say that the the high that uh, falling in love produces is basically the same as the high produced by cocaine. So all these people run around high on cocaine. Uh, it's exhilarating. But eventually, you feel the leash, right? You discover that loving someone so much, it leaves you vulnerable. Because no one can hurt you the way they can. And wanting to work through the ways they hurt you and you hurt them, it is tough. It's easy to feel like it's beyond the limits of the leash. The hood. The hood makes things so much easier. Under the hood, it's enough to just tolerate one another. Or maybe that's, you, you feel that leash uh, through work. I know Jen obviously recently felt it. She was doing work she loved with people she loved. And all of a sudden, the leash. Um, I mean, I know there are a number of teachers here, and I'm sure that you, you felt that. I mean, I suspect that most people get into teaching because they value the relationships. They love kids. They love being a part of those moments where light bulbs go off and discoveries are made. But then you find out, oh, man, so little of the profession is about that. It's about numbers, it's about politics, it's about test scores, it's about a number of things, but the thing that you love, that you felt called to do, is low on the list. Also think about us, you know, that we've now, uh, as a nation, have been at a drug war, a war on drugs, for about 50 years. And it's been sort of a futile effort, in part because we've, we've acted as though the drugs Drugs themselves, they're a problem, but they're not the source of the problem. The, the real problem is that there are so many people for whom their wings have become a burden because they do not know how to spread them. They don't know how to fly. And they, it seems like a sky full of possibilities and such a short leash. It's knowing that the only way you can find relief is injecting something into your arm that brings the hood down over your eyes. You know, I try to imagine what it was like to be one of the disciples, to bear witness to those miracles, and not just to the miracles themselves, but to be there to see how that, the crowd reacts to those miracles. I was, think about marching along with Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem you know, that triumphal entry, seeing that jubilant, chaotic parade, that must have been such a profound confirmation. Finally, finally, everybody is seeing in this guy what you saw in this guy and, and feeling like that you are at the center of a defining moment in the history of your people. But so little time so little time passes between that day and the night that he's led away by the authorities 
like some common criminal, like some animal on a leash. And then a day later, there he is. Above the crowds, his arms spread wide, but not because he's taken flight. He's not going anywhere. A few nails have made sure of that. I wonder what I would be thinking in that moment. You know, I'm sure I'd be sad, but I think I'm giving myself too much credit if I think that's all I would feel. I think I'd be angry. Like I had been conned, made a sucker. I'd be mad at myself for not having paid more attention to concerns I probably had along the way. Concerns I ignored because I wanted to believe Jesus was something that I that he clearly isn't. You know, why, why did he pick all those fights with the Pharisees? Why, why did he basically every, alienate every authority he bumped into? Didn't he know that this was coming? How did I not know this was coming? I don't know. I don't know how I would have tried to make sense of it or whether I would have even tried to make sense of it. Maybe by the Evening of Friday, it already it'd already be under the hood of alcohol, trying to forget it all. Regardless, I don't think I could have imagined that there would have been a way through this, that God would have found a way through this. But God does, just as He does here at the Red Sea. You know, the chapter that follows. The one we read is a chapter in which Israel just sort of breaks out in, into song, praising God and God's absolute victory. I mean, it, on the one hand, it's, it's like it's finally over. It's over. They're dead. On the other hand, after the singing, the next thing is, all right, Let's go. And as we know, there's 40 years of wandering the wilderness. You know, they have places to go. You get through this, and what it enables you to do is keep moving. Uh, a couple months back, Jen and I uh, were able to hear Ira Glass give a lecture at Goshen College. Ira is the host of This American Life, which is a tip, most of the time, it's a fantastic radio show on NPR. Anyway, and he was talking about various pressing issues that are facing us as a nation, that are facing us as a species. And he's talking about the fact that, that we have to address these issues, these urgent issues, at a time when, we have, when we're so divided, when it's so difficult for people to talk past their political divides. It's, you know, it's like it feels a little hopeless. He said this, and then there was sort of this pause. And then he said, as the weight of that sort of sat in, and then he said, meanwhile, there's some really good shows on TV, right? That also defines this period. And he's right. As far as life under the hood is concerned, this is the golden age. We can keep you numbly amused every waking hour. Just keep staring at your screen. We are called to be a people on the move. We have places to go, sky to explore, and wings with which to explore it. Yeah, there is so much that keeps us leashed 
and it is painful to feel the pull of all, of all that's within us and around us holding us back. You know, the temptation is to just, just want to go back to Egypt, to just wear the hood. That temptation is always there. And it can be frustrating. It can be frustrating that God is not as interested in having us avoid these setbacks, these heartbreaks, as we would like God to be. Because more often than not, what God does is say, okay, go through it. Right through the middle of it. More often than not, that is where we see God working, holding back the flood, making a path. You know, in order to get to that to Easter Sunday, you gotta go through Good Friday. Uh, and so when we experience those Easter Sundays, like the people of Israel there, we, we celebrate it, we sing about it because you've made it. Well, but you've made it so that you can keep going. Because God gets us to Easter Sunday, but then Monday comes with its challenges. And we've got to keep moving, keep flying. We were created to fly. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.